Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Well, welcome to OnScript. This is going to be very much off script this week. And it's going to be, again, fairly unique. Uh, you can blame me, um, but this is going to be uh, an entirely unique approach. We're going to introduce in a moment two scholars who, who take different views on, on an important theological theme, namely divine simplicity, which we're going to be getting to. And then we thought we'd just have a chat about these things together. Um, now, for those of you who are listening to me and thinking, divine simplicity? What was that? Well, uh, fear not, we're going to be talking a little bit about what that might mean when we get going. I understand when I first came across the um, the topic of divine simplicity, I, I had massive misunderstandings, as I'm sure many would. Uh, when I started to have, to have to wrestle with the doctrine of the Trinity, then it's not long before you confront the importance of this um, topic and, and to what extent it's grounded in scripture or not will be one of perennial interest. I remember reading David Bentley Hart's book um, on God, in which he claimed that denial of divine simplicity is tantamount to atheism. And of course, when you hear a claim like that, you think, well, crikey, I, I better know what I think about something like this then. After all, does this make the apostles and prophets atheists? And so that it, it also involves then how do we understand the relationship between systematic theology and theological claims and divine ontology or whatever else we want to say and scripture. Anyway, these and many other questions will no doubt um, come up in the following discussion. So I want to first then introduce my two esteemed guests and it's a real joy to have them on, especially in this strange time of the coronavirus, which is when we're recording this. Um, but first, Dr. Ryan Mullins, PhD from the University of St. Andrews, where I was an undergraduate, by the way. Um, he is the research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Edinburgh. And he has published on topics such as God and time, the Trinity, the incarnation, disability theology, or, and the problem of evil. And his book, The End of the Timeless Good, uh, God was released in 2016 by Oxford University Press. His book, God and Emotion, will be out in 2020 through Cambridge University Press. He has, held, uh, he has previously held research and teaching fellowships at the University of Notre Dame and the University of Cambridge and the University of St Andrews. And when not engaging in philosophical theology, he is often found at a metal show. Oh, a what? Just, well, I guess in the UK you'd call it a gig, so like a heavy metal gig. A heavy metal person, all right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now I okay, all right. Well, I'm judging you a little bit already. That's that's all right. <laughs> Over to our second guest, Stephen Neems, who is a PhD. Have I pronounced your name right? I'm sorry. No, it's it's Nemesh. <clears throat> my I'm Romanian, but my name is Hungarian, and it's pronounced Nemesh. Nemesh. You see, yeah, I'm going to exactly. have to re-record this. 
I, I, I did the same thing when, when Steven and I did some episodes in the past. So, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking as you were beginning that I would have to like alert you to the pronunciation of the name, but it just, it, I didn't do it. I'm sorry. It's my mistake. That, that, is, that is your mistake. I, I like that. We'll keep all of this in, actually. <laughs> Stephen Nemish is a PhD candidate in systematic theology at Fuller um, Theological Seminary, stand, studying under um, none other than Oliver Crisp. And his area of research is the intersection between philosophy and theology. He is working on a dissertation tentatively titled A Constructive Theological Phenomenology for Scripture. He has published articles in journals such as Neue Zeitschrift für Systematische Theologie und Religionsphilosophie, Haythrop Journal, Journal of Analytic Theology, Irish Theological Quarterly and Open Theology. Wow. So you're both well uh, able to discuss this important topic. But first, I think we're going to have to get to matters of definition so that we know where we stand. Um, Ryan, over to you. What is divine simplicity? And maybe when you've you've given us your answer, Stephen, you can chip in if you've got any disagreements or tweaks or nuances. Yeah, so one way to think about the doctrine of divine simplicity is to look at God as this sort of undifferentiated divine substance, and there's nothing else to God. So the doctrine says that God does not have any parts, properties, tropes, imminent universals, accidental properties, forms, all these things that metaphysicians like to talk about. God doesn't have any of those. Instead, the claim is that all of God's attributes are identical to each other and then identical to God's existence. And then further, on, on top of that, they'll say that God does not have any potential, but instead God is purely actual. And then on top of that, it'll say, well, all of God's actions, we think God has different actions, like you know, uh, parting the Red Sea, uh, answering these prayers. All of those actions are identical to each other, such that there's only one divine act. And then that one divine act is identical to God's existence. And so that's the big idea in a nutshell. And it's really important to understand how strong of a claim this is, because any kind of properties you want to attribute to God, you can't say God has any, because it's, it's right there in, in the description already. God has no properties whatsoever. And so that's the big idea. That's excellent. So, Stephen, have you got anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I might make um, uh, a small point about calling God a substance. Um, typically, in my understanding of, for example, Aristotelian metaphysics, Substances are analyzable in terms of form and matter. Every substance has a substantial form and uh, uh, prime matter. Um, the substantial form being a principle of intelligibility, it makes the thing what it is and it makes the thing knowable. And the prime matter being what individuates it, what makes it one thing. But of course, divine simplicity denies that God is a, is a composite of form and matter. Uh, it's not as if God is an individual thing with a particular kind of, or nature. Um, so I, I might push back a little bit on calling God a substance. I would sooner say that God is a, a purely actual, undifferentiated reality, right? He's not an individual. He's not one thing among other things. Uh, he doesn't have properties like you said. Um, if we describe God at all, if we can describe God at all, we would just simply say uh, what he is. He is actuality. He is power. He is goodness. He is knowledge, etc. 
uh, without being an individual that possesses all these things. So that would be a, a, a clarifying point that I would make. God isn't a substance in the sense of an individual thing. Right. No, that's fair. Because you see people like Augustine and Anselm uh, both wrestle with this question. They're like, well, God's a substance. Oh, but he's not quite. And then so Anselm comes to this conclusion of saying, like, I don't have another term to use. So I'll just keep doing this. I'll just keep using the word substance until someone else comes up with something else. So, so yeah, so I think that's a good qualification to, to put in there. Hmm. Um, now, to translate this down, perhaps, um, down to a level that um, the likes of me can understand, there, there seem to be two layers, Ryan, to your definition. Um, there was the notion that we are dealing here with God as actus purus, you know, the pure actuality. Can you explain that a little bit before we turn to the first part of your definition? Yeah, so I am a, th I'm a thing and I have the potential to do all sorts of stuff. I've got the potential to talk to you. I've got the potential to say, I'm done with this interview. I'm going to go eat a blueberry muffin instead because my wife made some great blueberry muffins. I've got the potential to do a lot of different things. Uh, and if I act on one of those things, I'm actualizing that sort of potential. Well, when we talk about a simple God, we want to say God doesn't have potential at all. Like he's purely actual. There's nothing in him that could be otherwise, that could change in the sense of not being actualized to being actualized. So that's, that's part of the idea there of pure actuality. And mm -hmm. um, you anything to add to that, Stephen, at all? Um, I, I suppose I could. Um, I like how Ryan began. He's a thing, um, you know. That's certainly true. Ryan is a thing. Every everything is a thing in 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 the strictest sense. Uh, a thing, I guess, would be another way of talking about an individual being. And we find that individual beings, uh, with which we're familiar in our experience, have this multiplicity about them. There's the way they actually are, and there's the way they could be, or they potentially are. I am actually seated, but I'm potentially standing. I am actually speaking, but I am potentially silent. And then I was actually silent, and now I'm actually speaking. Whereas God is not a thing. He's not made up of this, you know, mixture of actualities and potentialities. He is just, like I said earlier, a pure, um, perfectly actual reality that is not a thing, that's not individuated, that isn't uh, particular. It's just pure actuality. That's the idea, without potentiality of any kind. That's really helpful. Thanks. And I think we're going to have to come back to that, I, I anticipate, um, when we get to some of the key debates. Now, the first part of your definition, Ryan, could you just... Just in a nutshell, say it again for, for the listeners who may have already gotten lost. So it's good. Sure. <laughs> so again, I'll go back to the claim that I'm a thing and I have lots of properties. Uh, I have the property of being very, very pale, uh, as all my Italian uh, relatives will tell me that he's so pale. Are you sure he's, he's healthy? Uh, and so they'll question, do I have the property of being healthy? And these are properties that different people have um, and then that I have. Uh, now, when it comes to God, though, we don't want to say that God has properties if you affirm divine simplicity. You want, because uh, people who affirm divine simplicity take properties to be something like parts. And they don't want to say God has any parts at all because he's completely simple. So instead of saying God has properties or attributes or things like that, what they, they want to say is, well, they're just identical to God. God just is power. God just is knowledge. God just is love. These sorts of, it's a very strong claim. So God doesn't have an attribute, like I had the attribute of being very pale. Uh, God just is, well, he's not pale, I guess, but um, God just is his uh, power or whatever you'd, you'd want to say of God. Mm. So an, another way of putting this, is it then fair to say that in... Um, affirming divine simplicity is another way of saying we can't speak of God as faithful over there or or loving there and then wrathful again over somewhere else 
but rather all of these belong together. They they are. Help me nuance exactly. what I'm saying here. Yeah, no, because I I reject divine simplicity, and I can say all of that because I could say you're not going to find God's attributes floating free from God. You're never going to find God's uh, power somehow disconnected from God. Like most models of God are going to want to say that. The claim from simplicity is stronger. Is that God's attributes are identical to each other and identical to God. So it's a much, much stronger claim than just having attributes in some sort of unified way. They are identical. Now, so you've already said, Ryan, that you don't affirm divine simplicity. And I want to come to that in a moment. But maybe, Stephen, you could say something because you affirm divine simplicity. Can you say something about the importance of divine simplicity in the, in the history of Trinitarian dogma and in the articulation of uh, core theological claims in, you know, don't need to go through it all, but just give us some idea of its importance in, in church history and, and thought. Certainly. Um, if you read, um, you know, treatments of the development of Christian dogma by Lewis Ayers, for example, or Khaled Anatolios, they will point out that again and again, the church fathers in developing the doctrine of the Trinity appealed to the doctrine of divine simplicity specifically to preserve the consubstantiality of the persons of the Trinity. Um, so father and son, for example, there is this relation of, of filiation that distinguishes them. And yet, so they say, because we all know that the divine nature is absolutely simple and not composite in different ways, we have to think of this consubstantiality in the strongest possible sense. There is one uh, Godhead, so to speak, in which there exists, as we know through revelation and not philosophically, this relation of filiation between the Father and the Son. But it's precisely divine simplicity that keeps uh, the Godhead from splitting up into two different gods, right? Divine simplicity is what prevents the Father and the Son from being conceived of as two different divine beings sharing a certain nature, uh, just like Ryan and I share a human nature. Uh, precisely because they affirm divine simplicity, the connection between the Father and the Son is infinitely tighter than that. There is a single divine reality within the confines of which, you know, confines, within the confines of which uh, there exists this, some kind of distinction and relation between the Father and the Son grounded in this relation of filiation. Um, but there's a, there's a single divine reality and not two divine realities. Um, this comes out especially clearly, for example, in Lewis Ayer's uh, treatment of uh, the doctrine of the Trinity in Augustine um, towards the end of his Nicaea and its legacy. I think that's uh, Ayer's book. Uh, so, yeah, the, the doctrine of divine simplicity, I think, my opinion is the, the doctrine of divine simplicity is what prevented Trinitarian theology from becoming tritheistic. It was precisely through the doctrine of divine simplicity and the, the insistence on the absolute simplicity and lack of internal differentiation or multiplication of any kind within the Godhead that preserved Trinitarianism as a kind of monotheism in spite of what, um, you know, for example, Jürgen Moltmann says. Mm. So it's central to speaking about the oneness of God. Is, yes. Yes. In, in a very particular and, and strong sense. Okay, now I think we've got some idea of what we're dealing with. One of the most fascinating areas of debate that I've sort of looked at from a distance as a biblical scholar. Um, now, I won't mention his name, but there is a certain... Scottish theologian who will who will bellow down in a conversation with me, maybe mortal collapse um, when he's speaking about divine simplicity. Now, I do, I, I'm fascinated by these kind of philosophical um, arguments. I don't have a great understanding of them, I'll be honest with you. And um, so maybe you could um, help us, one of you could help us understand what is 
the particular critique of divine simplicity that focuses on this thing called modal collapse. Ryan, maybe you could you could um, start us off by just helping us understand this critique of divine simplicity. Right. So there's several different versions of the modal collapse argument that you could give, but here's the big idea of what they all kind of have in common. So modal collapse arguments, what they're trying to do is they're trying to look at like a combination of some standard Christian claims about, say, like God's freedom, God's providence, God's grace, which whichever sort of claims you want to focus on. They say that when you combine those with simplicity, you end up getting um, get, getting rid of all contingency in the world. So what we have is uh, this thing called modal logic, and we have different concepts in modal logic such that certain things are necessary and some other things are contingent. And so those are distinct categories. When you have a modal collapse, what you're saying is all those distinct categories get collapsed into just one category. Maybe everything's contingent or maybe everything's necessary. And so the modal collapse arguments that I've developed and that other people have developed, uh, they what they're trying to do is show that when you combine Christian claims with simplicity, you get everything collapsed into necessity. And that's the only category there. And that's pretty bad because then nobody has freedom, not even God. Absolutely everything's necessary. So that's, that's not the argument itself, but that's what the argument's trying to do. So one of the ones that I've, that I've focused on is what I'll call um, like the potentiality objection. And this is one that Stevens uh, responded to. So, so I think it'd be good for us to just kind of work, work with this version of it. So the idea goes like this. So classical Christian theism says that God is free in the sense that God is the source of his own actions and that God has the ability to do either this or that. God could create or he could not create. He could decree this thing or he could decree something else. He could say, you know what, Holy Spirit, you're going to become incarnate instead of the uh, instead of the Son. Or, you know, maybe no one becomes incarnate. These are options that God has. Now, what the problem here is, is that when you're looking at this claim that God is pure actuality, well, it's, it's a bit difficult to figure out how this is supposed to work. Because if God's uh, purely actual, then he couldn't, it seems like you couldn't have possibility to do otherwise. So if God could have created a different universe instead of this one, that seems like that's unactualized potential in God. It seems like if uh, another claim you might say is maybe God uh, could have created a multiverse, not just this universe, but a bunch of different universes. If God did not do that, then that would be unactualized potential in God. God has the potential to do all these things. And so I can start like, you know, adding up all sorts of different things. He could have given uh, Chris a little bit more grace uh, in a, uh, than he did, but he decided not to. Ooh, well, that's unactualized potential in God. So you can start adding up all these unactualized potentials in God. Well, now you completely contradicted the claim that God is pure actuality within simplicity. And so you're like, well, gosh, if I want to affirm simplicity, how do I get out of that? Well, one way you could do is you could say, if God's purely actual, then anything that he could do, he must do. Otherwise, he's going to have unactualized potential. And if anything that God could do, that God must do, that entails a modal collapse because what it entails is that this is the only way things could be. God couldn't have done otherwise because otherwise he would have unactualized potential. And so someone like uh, Catherine Rogers, who affirms divine simplicity, she says, yeah, this is what we have to do. We just have to say, this is the only possible world. Uh, maybe the world contains a multiverse. Maybe it contains just this universe. But we have to say, this is the only possible world because if God could have done otherwise, he has unactualized potential. But then, like I said, we get this modal collapse. Everything becomes necessary. We have no contingency. And that seems really difficult to square with the ideas that we have freedom and lots of other claims within Christian thought. What, what are those other Christian claims, you think, that rub right. up against so this? 
So it's not simply just the claim that God could create or not create, or that God could create this universe or a different universe. It has this knock-on effect. So when you're looking at like Protestant debates about the order of the decrees, there's all these debates about, did God decree this or that? Could he have decreed something differently, like a different order of salvation? And they're like, well, yeah, of course he could have. And so that seems like, well, if, if you have a modal collapse, then God could not have. Uh, another common claim you see within like the doctrine of providence or sometimes like when people are looking at the problem of evil, like a theodicy, they're going to want to say there's certain things that God permitted. God could have stopped that particular evil from happening, but he had a good reason not to, so he allowed it to happen. Well, that's not going to be the case if there's a modal collapse. God could not have done anything else other than allow it to happen. He couldn't have prevented it if a modal collapse takes place. And so now all our claims about theodicy, our claims about God could have done something else, those are all gone. And so, so those are some more details. Again, I could add more things, but those are some pretty big claims within Christian thought that we typically want to say, and those are all gone if the modal collapse in, in, in fact occurs. Now, Stephen, we've just been presented with um, uh, what Ryan has called the potentiality objection or, or that particular version of, of the modal collapse argument. And you have published on, on this particular theme. Maybe you could showcase your, your argument now and tell us what you think is uh, fault here. I think, <clears throat> I think that the potentiality uh, formulation of the modal collapse argument presupposes a particular principle, a metaphysical principle about uh, causes and their effects, which the proponent of divine simplicity has to reject if he is to maintain the contingency of the world. And the principle is the following. I call it the difference principle. Um, the difference principle can be formulated as affirming that a possible difference in effect requires a possible difference in the cause. So, for example, when I enter in my car, uh, I have a Volkswagen Jetta, I call her Georgetta. Uh, my fiance really likes that. She thinks it's funny. When I, you know, when I insert the key <clears throat> into Georgetta and I turn the key, normally the car turns on and everything is great. Um, you know, there's this long causal mechanism that is responsible. F you know, that begins with my turning the key and that ends in the ignition of the engine and so on. Uh, let's say one day I find that when I t put the key in the car and I turn it, it doesn't turn on anymore. Right? The effect is different in this case. The car is not turned on. There's a difference in the effect. So that means that there must be something different in that cause, which normally produces the effect. There must be something different in that mechanism or that, you know, series of causes that starts with the turning of the key and ends with the, the ignition of the engine. There has to be something different there now because the effect is different. The possibility of the difference in the effect presupposes a possibility of the difference in the cause. I think that that's precisely what's at play here in the argument from divine from, for modal collapse. Um, God created this world. Right? His actual effect is this world with everything that exists. Uh, but suppose that he could have created another world or no world at all. Suppose that some other world might have existed or suppose that no world might have existed, simply God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. In that case, this possible difference in effect would require a possible difference in the cause. That's the, the reasoning. And again, because God creates immediately, he doesn't use intermediaries. There's no mediating chain of being right between God and his effect. He just produces things ex nihilo. Because there has to be a possible difference in, in, in order for there to be a possible difference in the effect of God's creation, there would have to therefore be a possible difference in God himself. And of course, a possible difference in the intrinsic being of a thing is precisely a potentiality. That's what a potentiality is, is a, different, a possibility to be different intrinsically. That's a potentiality. So I think that the modal collapse argument assumes this principle. I think 
that the proponent of divine simplicity who wishes to avoid modal collapse has to reject this principle. He has to say that God could have produced a different effect or no effect at all uh, without himself being different intrinsically in any way. God remains absolutely unchanged and necessary in the most, you know, in the strongest, most absolute sense across all possible worlds, so to speak, uh, even though the effect that he produces is different. So God remains unchanged, but his possible effects are numerous. Um, and there's nothing different within God, which accounts for the possibility, or there's no, there's no possibility of difference within God necessary to account for the possibility of a difference in his effects. Now, you might ask the question, why should anybody accept the rejection of the principle at, that, at this precise point? Um, well, there are a few reasons. If you are inclined to think that indeterministic causation is possible, then you have to reject the difference principle. Because indeterminism is precisely the view that a single reality, while remaining unchanged, can produce different and mutually exclusive possible effects. So, for example, in, in the philosophy of free will, we talk about libertarian freedom. Libertarian freedom is uh, what Scotus calls, uh, I think it's called synchronic contingency, right? At one moment in time, there is a possibility to do X and a possibility to do other than X, right? The possible difference in the cause is not uh, grounded in a possible difference in the agent as the actor, right? One person at any moment in time when he acts freely is capable of doing X or not doing X. Uh, and so if you were to take a look at this uh, model of agency, you take one moment prior to the decisions being made and another moment after the decisions being made. In the prior moment, the agent remains exactly the same and there are different possible posterior moments. In one case, he chooses to eat a sandwich. In another case, he chooses to drink chocolate milk, whatever. Um, but the prior uh, state is exactly the same in both cases. So the, the, that means that the process of causality is indeterministic. A single state is, uh, can possibly produce you know, mutually exclusive uh, secondary states. And I think that that's what you have to say in the case of God as well. God, God's causation, his primary causation, his way of relating to created being is indeterministic. He can produce one effect and he can produce, produce another effect while himself remaining entirely unchanged and uh, you know, uh, exactly the same, identical. Now, Ryan, um, back to you. What do you make of of this argument, and and what have you got to say in response? Mm -hmm. So, I think the account of indeterminism is slightly off here. So, indeterminism is supposed to say that everything that's happened up to this point in time, it doesn't determine what happens at the next moment. And so, this is um, the diachronic uh, account of um, uh, of freedom that, that we were looking at, that Stephen was mentioning. Or the synchronic is slightly different. Synchronic is if I've already performed an action, I could have done something else at this exact same moment. And that gets a little bit weird. Um, we could talk about that later if you want. But the idea is, again, that uh, determinism says that everything up to this point uh, and moment of time, if I, if I push the pause button, if everything up to this point would entail, there has to be a particular outcome at the next moment, then that's determinism. And determinism says, if I press pause right now at this moment in time, What's going to happen in the next moment? Well, nothing that's led up to this is going to determine that one outcome or another happens. So it's up to me as an agent, a free agent, to be able to pick which outcome comes about. But I don't think this actually gets rid of the uh, difference principle. In, because if we're looking at agents like me, uh, what brings about the particular outcome at the next moment is because I perform a particular action. So 
is so say I decide like I want to get up and go eat one of the blueberry muffins that my wife has made instead of continuing to talk to you. Well, what brings about that outcome? The fact that I actualize my potential to go do that instead of actualizing my potential to stay here and talk to you. So it, so all this still has the difference making principle within it. Um, the claim is that nothing about the prior states of affairs like causally determined me to select one of those actions. I'm the thing that selects the action. Uh, and in the way that I select is what brings about the difference. So the way that I select is the difference in the cause, me, and it brings about a difference in the effect. So if I apply that to a simple God, I can't give that analysis anymore um, because a simple God doesn't have the potential to do this sort of thing. So I guess the claim I've just made now, let me clarify what I've just done. One is I've said the difference-making principle is still at play in an indeterministic account of free will. And the account that I gave there of how that works I can't apply to a simple God because the account of how it works with me assumes that I've got potential that I could actualize. And we can't say that with a simple God. To kind of drive the point home a little bit further, though, um, when I look at all the different classical Christian doctrines about God could do this or that, why did God, why did this particular timeline occur instead of this other timeline? Because that's the one that God chose. That's the way God willed it. He, will, he willed this particular decree. And so that's why he got that timeline. Well, could God have gotten a different one? Yeah, he could have if he willed that way, but he didn't. And so I'm like, oh, well, hang on. It sounds like this difference-making principle, it's built into a bunch of different Christian doctrines. Christian doctrines related to how we articulate God's freedom, how we articulate uh, doctrines of providence, predestination, giving of grace, all these sorts of things. They all seem to assume some kind of difference-making principle. So if I get rid of the difference-making principle to preserve divine simplicity, I guess that's fine, but now I have to rewrite all the other aspects of my Christian, my classical Christian theology. And it's a really high cost. If I'm trying to defend a classical Christian notion of God, I shouldn't have to like rewrite a whole bunch of other things in my Christian theology. And so I think that's a really high cost here. Um, maybe, Stephen, before we come to you, Ryan, this last point, um, could, you, could you just elaborate on, on that again? When you say, if we were to get rid of the difference-making principle from other doctrines, can you just give us an example of what that might look like or, or what you're trying right. to... So again, like if you want to affirm something like um, uh, any kind of doctrine of predestination or providence, I'll just go with providence because not everybody's happy with predestination. doesn't matter which uh, theory of providence you would affirm. The idea is there's a particular timeline of how history will unfold that God selects before the foundations of the world. God selects one of these timelines to say, that's how I want history to go. Why does this timeline occur instead of a different one? Because God willed that one. He could have willed a different one. He could have chosen a different timeline, but he willed this one. And so the difference-making principle is built into any doctrine, like any account of providence. And I could, again, apply this to lots of other doctrines, but that's, you know, that's, this is one really classic example that's going to hit most theological systems, because most theological systems have some kind of doctrine of providence. That's helpful. Okay. Well, now, Stephen, then over to you. Um, what, what do you think of that? Well, I think he's wrong. <laughs> uh, and I can, I, can try to, <laughs> I can try to show how. One point that I wish to make, and I'm sure we'll return to this when we talk about divine simplicity in scripture later, is I, I fully grant that the doctrine of divine simplicity in its uh, metaphysical exigencies requires a certain reinterpretation of familiar biblical and theological language. Um, so we can talk more about that later. I will address uh, what Ryan said about the difference principle in the following way. Our activities, our actions, um, involve first a kind of a self-directed uh, causal force, which then translates into an effect in the outer world. So, for example, I don't go directly from sitting in this seat to drinking, you know, uh, 
uh, mineral water. First, I have to apply, you know, first I have to move my body, uh, and then I get up and I get out of the room, I open up the refrigerator door, I pull out a mineral water, etc. Uh, so our, our causal activity, our causal, um, you know, uh, action begins in us first, and then it moves into the outside. And that's just the way we are as bodies. Because we have bodies, we have to act on ourselves first in some way, we have to move ourselves and then uh, affect things in our environment. With God, however, there is no internal activity. God doesn't do anything to himself, and then, um, uh, and then that has effects on the outside world. God's action is always and already externalized. Um, uh, so that means that there isn't this problem of you know, a potentiality for differences or whatever, because the potentiality is entirely, the possibilities are entirely external to God. There's nothing that he does to himself. And then, for example, I do not say that God forms an intention or that he makes a choice to create this world. This world exists, it exists freely, or it exists contingently, um, it didn't have to exist. Its actuality is grounded in God's creative, you know, power or whatever. Uh, but there is not like in God, first an intention or a decision to create this world, which then translates into um, a, a, an outside effect. I think that even if you look at the model that Ryan has proposed, there is still a denial of the difference principle because we can just restrict the domain of the discussion. You have the agent and then you have various possible intentions that he can perform, right? The agent then actualizes one of those intentions and those intentions are intrinsic to him. An intention is an intrinsic property of a thing. But if you look at that, that uh, causal scenario very closely, the agent by himself remains totally unchanged and he can produce multiple possible intentions. So there is still a denial of a difference, right? You, there is still a denial of a necessary difference. This, the one and the same agent can actualize this intention or that intention, uh, can perform this intrinsic uh, causal action on himself or, or that intrinsic causal action on himself while himself remaining entirely unchanged if he's going to have libertarian free will. So uh, I, I still think that indeterminism uh, requires a denial of the difference principle. It's just that the, the denial takes place externally with respect to God and internally with respect to the human agent. Because again, we have bodies and we have this composite form of being which means that we first have to perform a causal action on ourselves that translates into an outside effect, whereas God simply produces the outside effect uh, perfectly externally to himself without, you know, affecting himself first in some way by, you know, forming an intention or by making a choice or by making a decision or anything like that. Okay, so there's a, a key distinction you're pressing here between internal and external. Um, Ryan, what do you think? I, I, just, I don't understand this in the slightest. Um, so when I perform an action... Say I'm just a disembodied soul. I don't even need a body. I can still perform basic actions. And pretty much every model of God wants to say God performs basic actions where he just does something without having to do something else. He just does it and it brings about an effect. If I'm a disembodied soul, I could say the same thing. Um, but when I bring about an effect, like I, when I select, you know, that's the intention I want to do and I want to actualize this particular capacity or, or power to do this instead of that, that is an intrinsic change in me. So I can say, I guess, like when I, if I push the pause button on time and say, like at this moment, you know, I could do X or I could do not X at the next moment. Well, that moment, sure, I'm not changing, but I select one particular move. And at the next moment, I do undergo a change because I actualize a potential to do one thing instead of another. So there's still a change, like uh, and a difference, like going on. It's just, it's over a series of moments. So I, so I, yeah, so I guess I'm kind of confused about where there's no change. So let me ask you a question. Do you agree that uh, 
the formation of an intention is prior to the performance of an action? Uh, yeah, it seems it seems like that's how it uh, goes sometimes because sometimes you just act and you don't. You don't right. You don't so I, I don't. I don't mean. I don't mean necessarily like temporally prior. It's right. The the intention to act is logically prior is, or something like that. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah however you want to say it. Um, okay. So let's restrict the the let's restrict our vision just to the agent and the formation of an intention, mm-hmm. right? Leaving aside the question about an action. Yeah. My point is that if an agent can act indeterministically, the agent can remain unchanged across possible different possible scenarios, and yet in one of them actualize this intention, in another one in another one actualize another intention. Uh, so the agent himself remains unchanged in those cases, but the intention that he forms is different. So that's that's why I'm saying that indeterminism requires a, a rejection of the difference principle. If you restrict the scope to the formation of intention or whatever it is that you think is that first step between an undecided agent and an acting agent, right? Whatever it is that you think is that first part of acting, uh, there the relation between the undecided agent and the acting agent has to be indeterministic, and it and it has to it it will involve a rejection of the difference principle. Yeah, I guess I'm still not following because it seems like. If I have this intention, like that's a difference uh, that I didn't have at the previous moment, even if it's a logical moment, I didn't have that intention before. Uh, I agree, I agree yeah. that you, that it's a difference. My point, but notice the difference in the case of an intention is a difference in effect because the intention is an effect, right? In this scenario, that's a difference in effect. But I'm saying that this difference in effect can exist without a necess- without a difference in the cause because one and the same undecided agent can form multiple possible intentions, right? Okay. So the undecided agent remains the same and the intention understood as the intention that he forms understood as his, as his effect can be possibly different. Okay. So if I'm looking at me at a logical moment without any intentions, like that's what you're asking me to do. Yes. Okay. Now help me out understand, uh, before we move on to the next topics. Um, so when I look at the case of a simple God, am I saying that God has, has intentions or am I denying that God has intentions? I don't think that God has intentions, at least not literally. Um, I just mean to propose an analogy between an undecided, you know, agent who enjoys libertarian freedom and God. The difference is that the undecided agent first creates an intention in himself Whereas God does not create an intention in himself. He simply produces the world as his effect. Right. Okay. So that's, okay. So this, okay, this helps out a lot. So when I was talking earlier about how it's kind of, how the difference making principle is typically built into a lot of different doctrines, I, I pick providence specifically for this reason, because when we're talking about these different logical moments in the life of God, you see this uh, from like Duns Scotus on into a lot of the Protestant and Catholic scholastics. They start wanting to divide up all these different uh, intent, uh, logical moments in the life of God. And so they'll say the first logical moment, God doesn't have any intentions to create anything. He just knows all the possible things he could do. And the next logical moment, God has an intention to create. And thus, like somehow you kind of narrow down the range of things he could, he could create. And then the next logical moment, God uh, decides that's the world I want to create. And then in the next logical moment after that, then God knows how things are going to go because he's... Uh, decreed this is the world i want to make so all sorts of differences are all built into that sort of story and so if i want to get rid of that uh get rid of the difference making principle for god then i have to get rid of that entire analysis which in one sense might be really bad but there's another sense in which i can say maybe it won't be too bad for some people because i can identify some different protestant theologians who when they're kind of pushed and accused of uh, heresy or something because they had the wrong order of logical moments they'll go 
logical moments that apply to God at all. Uh, it's just a useful way of talking. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really believe these things. Uh, so it depends, I guess, if, if, if you're a Protestant theologian or a, scholastic, or a Catholic theologian and you want these logical moments to be real, you got, you can't, you can't do this, uh, if you, cause then you can have the difference making principle. But if you want to do the other thing where you get accused of being a dirty Arminian and you're like, I can't be an Arminian, so I'll get rid of all the logical moments. Well then that's fine. Yeah. Uh, you can make this move that Stephen's wanting to make. So that's, that's, that, I think that's kind of, I guess, how I'm seeing things at the moment. I think I would say that, you know, the, the secret things belong to the Lord. Um, and I think this, this inquiry into moments and, you know, logical moments and God's providential decision to create this world and all this stuff is speculative and it's unhelpful. And the doctrine of divine simplicity, I think, in its, in its full metaphysical exigency doesn't allow us to do anything like that. We simply have the world that God has created, which we can describe, but what goes on in God, we have no idea. Right. So then when I accuse you of being a dirty Arminian, you can be like, no, 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 I, this, this doesn't really apply to God. <laughs> I don't want to be a dirty anything, right. but let, you know, let alone a dirty Arminian. <laughs> well, I'm very glad to hear that, um, that for sure. Uh, do you think, um, Ryan, you could uh, just have a stab at summarizing where you are different now, where, where, where we've ended up with this conversation, mm -hmm. where the difference lies? Right. So in my mind, I want to say, if you want to affirm lots of different uh, somewhat traditional accounts of Christian theology, you're going to have to assume a difference-making principle because I think it's built into pretty much every single account of d divine freedom, including from people who affirm uh, divine simplicity like uh, Aquinas or like uh, Alexander Proust, to name someone contemporary. Uh, and then it's, I think it's going to be built into a lot of different doctrines of providence. So it seems to me like if you're going to get rid of the difference-making principle in order to affirm divine simplicity, you're going to have to rethink a lot of your theology. Uh, which is fine with me because I think yeah, I think if you've got simplicity in the game, you're going to have to rethink your theology anyway. Or if you want to reject simplicity like me, you're going to have to rethink your theology anyway. So I think you're going to have to rethink your theology somewhere. For me, I want to say I want to keep the difference principle. I want to keep a lot of different traditional things within the rest of theology. I'm going to get rid of simplicity. Whereas it sounds to me like Stephen's going to say, I'm going to keep simplicity. I'm going to get rid of the difference making principle. And so maybe I'll have to redo some other aspects of theology. What would you say to that, Stephen? Is that a fair summary of where the differences lie between the two I think of you? so. Um, <clears throat> my conviction is that the doctrine of divine simplicity, uh, understood in its full rigor, makes God so vastly different from us that a lot of speculative theology is seen to be just that, you know, groundless and speculative um, and possibly metaphysically confused. Um, I think that the doctrine of divine simplicity makes it impossible for us to know what God is like on the inside. We can only know God through his effects. Um, I think also that the doctrine of divine simplicity um, prevents us from thinking about God in terms that present him to as being analogous to us, as being a person like us with intentions, with ideas, with a decision, with a will, etc. I think all of that has to go. Um, if we limit ourselves simply to natural revelation, um, you know, natural theology, we know that God exists, as John of Damascus says, but what he is in essence or in nature is totally, totally unknown to us. Um, and it's always better, as he continues, to think of God in abstraction from created things. So rather than using created things as an analogy for, you know, constructing models about God, it's better just to set all that aside and to limit ourselves to what we can understand about God with natural reason, 
which is extremely little. We know that he exists and that he causes the world to exist, but beyond that, we don't know much of anything about him. I personally think that this sets the, sets the stage for the centrality of the incarnation as a way of knowing God. So in my mind, the doctrine of divine simplicity makes the incarnation all the more important for us, and scripture too, all the more important for us in the development of a theological language, knowing how to talk about God. Because naturally, simply limiting ourselves to, to general revelation, we have no idea what, how to talk about God because he is not like anything else that we can talk about. But when he comes into the world, uh, or when he speaks through the prophets, or when he comes into the world in Jesus Christ, he gives us a language, um, he gives us a way of talking about him. It may not be in every respect metaphysically adequate. It's not like it is an exact description of what he actually is. But it's a way of talking that is helpful for us so long as we remember that it's just that, a helpful way of talking and not a mirror into the metaphysics of divine mm. being or anything like that. Well, this brings us, I think, then usefully on to talking about Scripture in particular. Um, many of the biblical scholars that will be listening into this debate will have been wondering, no doubt, the, where's the name Jesus um, in this? How does Jesus fit into this? How does, how does the word which God speaks in Jesus echoed into the metaphysical speculations that we've been um, pursuing together. And I know you'll have different takes on this. So maybe, Ryan, if we were to come to to you first, and what do you think Scripture offers in maybe defense and uh, of, of your own perspective or perhaps criticism of divine simplicity? And then, Stephen, maybe you could offer some responses. So I think there's two sorts of arguments that we could discuss today. And so I'll just present the first one and see what Stephen uh, thinks of it. So this first one I'll call the Al-Ghazali complaint. And, and I'm naming it after the Islamic theologian Al-Ghazali, who was really critical of um, concepts like simplicity or timelessness within the Islamic tradition. And so his, his complaint is basically just something like this. It's just, why does scripture everywhere predicate of God distinct attributes and nowhere does scripture suggest that these attributes are identical to each other. So the big idea is, is just, you know, look, when I, when I, nothing in scripture describes God in terms that remotely look like simplicity. Isaiah never says, thus saith the Lord, all my attributes are identical to each other. Jesus never says, truly, truly, I say unto you, God has no properties. Like these things are just not there in the text. And, and so what it seems like to me, there's a burden on people who want to affirm simplicity to have to explain away all these things within scripture. And, and I want to emphasize something that this is not a really cheeky question I'm asking here, because it might sound like I'm, I'm just being like some low church uh, American going like, you know, the Bible doesn't say it. So come on. Um, so there's a similar sort of move that happens in the classical tradition. So when it comes to the doctrine of divine timelessness, people like Augustine, Pseudodonysius, uh, John Scythopolis, and Peter Lombard, they ask the following question. Why does the Bible always describe eternity in temporal terms? It doesn't describe eternity in timeless ways ever. What are we going to do about that? And that's a major prolegomena throughout the medieval time period. And then when you jump ahead to the Protestant Reformation and, and beyond, someone named Stephen Sharnock, he gives an answer. And he's like, well, why does the Bible not describe God in terms of timelessness? Because your concepts, your mind is too weak to understand timelessness. That's why the Bible never ex explains God in terms of timelessness. But then I just want to go, well, you understand timelessness. And so did Augustine, so did Pseudonesia, so did all those other people. They were smart enough. Did God really need to explain himself in a temporal way when he's timeless? Did God really need to describe himself in the exact opposite, in a contradictory way to what he really is? 
And so that's the kind of thing I'm, I want to push it with this Al-Ghazali complaint. It seems when I look at simplicity as well, it's not there in the text. The Bible always describes God in terms of having distinct attributes and never once says they are identical. Why would God describe himself in a way that completely contradicts the doctrine of divine simplicity? So that's the Al-Ghazali objection in a nutshell. Well, that's, that's very helpful. Um, now, Stephen, over to you. I will start by saying that I agree that the Bible does not teach the doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, there are some uh, theologians, uh, for example, I have a colleague here at Grand Canyon University, Stephen Duby, who re recently released a book that uh, addresses this point. I haven't read his book, so I can't speak to it. The quality of its arguments, I intend to read it sometime soon. Uh, but my my initial impression, if you were to ask me what I think about the the matter now as it stands, I don't think that the doctrine of divine simplicity is taught in the Bible. I don't think that it's a biblical doctrine in that sense. Um, I do think that there are some things that the Bible teaches which certainly cohere well with the doctrine of divine simplicity. For example, the creator-creature distinction. Uh, certainly the Bible teaches that God is different from all creatures, that he can't be made, you know, that you can't make a, a, a graven image of God. You couldn't possibly find a resemblance for him. Uh, his thoughts are as far from our thoughts as the sky is from the ground and so on. Um, so I, I agree that uh, the, the Bible doesn't teach divine simplicity. At the same time, there are ideas within the Bible that mesh well with divine simplicity. And divine simplicity might also be taken as a kind of a radicalization of the idea of the creator-creature distinction. Precisely by denying God even the metaphysical you know, categories of creatures, form and matter, substance, you know, essence, existence, etc. Precisely by, by denying of God all these things that pertain to creatures, you establish a distinction between creator and creature. So God is, is not like us in any way. Um, that is perhaps one way you could go. Um, my own opinion is that the doctrine of divine simplicity is a philosophical doctrine. It's, some, it's a doctrine that you come to through philosophical reasoning on the uh, and contemplation of the conditions of finite being, you find out that finite beings all have these qualities, uh, all, all have these forms of metaphysical composition that belong to them. And then you find out that because they have those forms of composition, they don't exist of their own power. Form and matter cannot possibly be united by their own power. Essence and existence, you know, don't, uh, you know, naturally occur together under their own power. Our being is contingent. We have to receive our being from somewhere. And so, in order to prevent an infinite regress, whatever it is that gives us our being ultimately does not also have these forms of metaphysical composition, because otherwise he would have the same problem. If he were a form-matter composite, then he would need to receive this unity of form and matter from somewhere else, right? So, the bottom, the, the rock-bottom level of reality has to be purely simple. It cannot be composite. Um, so, in the classical tradition, there is, you know, anything that is metaphysically composite is also finite and contingent and does not exist of its own. So that whatever does exist of its own cannot be metaphysically composite. That's the, the sort of the basic argument. I think that divine simplicity is a philosophical doctrine. It's a philosophical achievement. Um, I also think that thinking of timelessness, for example, to return to the timelessness example, grasping the notion of timelessness is a philosophical achievement. It's not something that you're born with or that you can understand very clearly. It takes very hard philosophical reflective work to attain to the thought of timelessness. Um, and it's not clear to me that uh, God is interested in making everyone to be a philosopher. I also don't know whether everyone is equally capable of it. I, don't, I think people have varying uh, gifts and, um, you know, vocations and callings from God. So I think that God 
did not teach divine timelessness or simplicity in scripture simply because it was irrelevant to the purpose. It doesn't, it, it, you know, it, he didn't have to. Uh, if somebody, you know, applies himself to the philosophical task, he can attain to the thought of timelessness and attain to an understanding of divine simplicity. And that's rewarding. And naturally that will also change how he understands things in scripture. That's just inevitably what happens when you attain to a new thought and to a new grasp of the truth. You have to rethink things that you thought earlier. Uh, but I don't think that that's a necessarily a problem because nothing that Scripture is really trying to do is compromised. Uh, God in Scripture tells us to repent of our sins. He announces the forgiveness of our sins. He announces His promises of His goodness towards us. And as long as we have those things, the you know mission accomplished. Scripture has done what it needs to do. It does not also have to provide us a metaphysically rigorous and adequate to every detail presentation of God's being in order to accomplish those tasks. I think this is, you know, just a, a matter of refining our knowledge and our understanding of God through the through the use of philosophical reasoning. Um, now, I'm I'm aware that we have been discussing these weighty matters now for for nigh on an hour, and I have learned a tremendous amount um, from you both. I wonder if we could just finish this by by sharpening some of the differences that seem to me to be evident by focusing on the name Jesus Christ and how all of that pans out rather than then thinking about scripture generally but of of uh the um the risen and exalted lord the the incarnate son of god um the one through whom god created the heavens and the earth um maybe we could even focus on uh, uh, Paul in particular in the New Testament or Hebrews or, or John um, where we see God so identified with Jesus Christ in his timeliness timefulness even um, how then would you both go about understanding Jesus as witness to in scripture um, given the two different approaches that you're bringing to the text what well, it seems to me that there are different frames that you're bringing to understanding uh, um, the name Jesus Christ. Um, perhaps you could help us unpack those differences as, as we finish. So when I look at the biblical text and I see this claim that this is the God of Jesus Christ, uh, that claim is an accidental property. Uh, it's not something that's essential to God because God did not have to become incarnate. He did not have to send his son this is something that God did not have to do. So it's an accidental property that God has. Now, that fits with lots of different models of God that will say God can have accidental properties. But it doesn't fit with a simple God because a simple God has no accidental properties. It's part of the very definition of divine simplicity that God has no accidental properties. So when I want to affirm the claim, this is the God of Jesus Christ, I feel like I'm saying something very true about God because he does, in fact, have this accidental property. But if I affirm divine simplicity, I don't see how to get up and running uh, because I have to say God doesn't have any accidental properties. So the very predicate, this is the God of Jesus Christ, I, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to apply to a God who has no accidental properties. So I think that's one big issue that a bunch of other models of God who say no simplicity whatsoever, we can affirm that easily. But how can someone who affirms sim simplicity, how can they really affirm that if God does not have any accidental properties. Thanks. Stephen. I think I would say the following. I, I can identify three uh, important points in which, uh, or three important consequences of the doctrine of divine simplicity for our doctrine of Jesus Christ. Uh, the first is this. Precisely because philosophically we cannot know what God is, we cannot know how he thinks about us, we cannot know what he feels towards us, we don't know 
why he has created the world. We don't know where the world is headed. Uh, that, I think, is a consequence of the doctrine of divine simplicity. There is, I believe in a natural theology, but I think it's extremely sparse. Uh, uh, I think that the doctrine of divine simplicity levels, you know, sets a stage for the advent of Jesus Christ in the sense that it tells us we don't know anything about God. If you think about it, one of the reasons why I think Jesus was rejected by uh, his contemporaries is precisely because they thought they knew God. Uh, they thought they knew what God was and what he wanted and what he was doing. And when they saw that Jesus didn't match up with that, they rejected Jesus. The doctrine of divine simplicity tells us to set aside everything that we know about God and to listen to him if he should appear uh, in whatever way he appears. Uh, that would be the one, I think the doctrine of divine simplicity sets up, sets the stage for the centrality of the incarnation for our thinking about God. Um, the second point I would make is this. The doctrine of divine simplicity also teaches us uh, how to understand God's work in Jesus Christ. I go through my life, some days I feel good, some days I feel bad, I commit sins, I feel guilty, uh, I wonder, is God angry at me? I take the, you know, the the um, the condemnation that my conscience offers me as perhaps being the voice of God telling me, hey, you are doing bad, I'm upset at you, etc. The doctrine of divine simplicity tells me that God doesn't change. He doesn't go from being happy at me, happy with me to being angry at me or whatever. God, whatever, however it is that God relates towards me, he simply is that always. Um, so I think that starting from that premise, when we understand the work of Jesus Christ, we don't see that God changed. At one point he was wrathful towards us and now he forgives us or... Um, you know, at some point in uh, at some point in our lives, God is again angry at us, and we have to do something in order to return to His good graces and to convince Him to be on our side again. I think that the doctrine of divine, divine simplicity motivates a highly actualized and objective doctrine of the atonement. What God is towards us, He always is, and God's work in Jesus Christ is simply the establishing of that attitude towards us and in making it clear towards us. God dies for our sins and he offers us forgiveness in Jesus Christ, which is always there and which is always valid and true. It's the true reality of us is that we're forgiven by God in Jesus Christ. Ryan will say, okay, how can you talk about the divine, you know, divine simplicity and divine forgiveness? That doesn't seem possible. I will set that aside for the sake of time. I will simply say that um, the doctrine of divine simplicity teaches us also to see God's work in Jesus Christ as a declaration of his love and his commitment to us and his forgiveness of our sins, and his desire to save us and to bring, bring us uh, to him. Um, of course, we may turn from him and reject him. God respects our freedom. Uh, but nevertheless, as far as God is concerned, we know what he is like because, again, he has revealed it to us in Jesus Christ, and what God is never changes. He has always been mercy and grace towards us in Jesus Christ. Um, I said I had three points. I may have combined some of those points in talking about that. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. But th that's how I understand the significance of divine simplicity for Christian theology and for Jesus Christ and our understanding of it. Um, well, we gave, Ryan, we gave you the, the opening word. So perhaps we'll, we'll leave that um, the Stephen there with, with the final word. I, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. And I'm deeply grateful to you both for your time and for the for the brilliance and articulation that you've uh, the clarity that you've you've provided on these matters well i hope you all enjoyed that colorful and complex theological debate with dr ryan mullins and stephen nemesh um, i think they both modeled disagreement brilliantly and hopefully this debate gives us all pause to consider the majesty of god afresh and bring us back where all good theology leads to prayer and worship. This is Chris Tilling signing off this unusual on script podcast on divine simplicity. 
You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.